this is the last of the five main offerings or sacrifices the book of Leviticus talks about that really set up the whole, I suppose, spiritual life of Israel for the rest of the Old Testament. And so this morning we're going to read from verse 14 of chapter 5 through to chapter 6 and verse 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realises his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbour in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he's oppressed his neighbour or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realised his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he has found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him whom it belongs on the day he realises his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Let's pray. Oh God, our, our fathers, we come to this, your word now. We pray that you would give us a double portion of your spirit. Uh, so that our hearts and our minds might be lifted up. Uh, that our minds may, might be set on the things that are above, on Christ Uh, and on the great redemption that is in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would increasingly move our hearts to long to, to be with him, uh, to sit with him. Might we love him more, uh, desire to dwell in your courts forevermore. And move our hearts, cold as they are, with your word, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. the right button. Okay. Uh, so Leviticus 5 and the final offering. I don't know how you feel as we get to the last of these five offerings. We're not quite done in Leviticus. We're going to go a little bit further over the next two or three weeks, but we are done with the sacrifices. Uh, these sacrifices that form uh, the backdrop to really the whole of the rest of scripture. Uh, I wonder, I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to risk it, but I wonder how many of them you can remember so far. Uh, we've been trying to ex- uh, explain uh, not just what they are, but kind of how they fit together. We'll look at that more in a couple of weeks. Uh, but just as a brief recap, so we know where we've been and therefore where we're going, we, we've, we've, we've ordered them A, B, C. It's quite useful. If it goes one, two, three, have the first three sacrifices, A, B, C. 
Okay, the first one was the ascension offering, uh, the, the, the offering that, if you like, brings us into God's presence, symbolically. Uh, B was the bring a gift offering. Okay, we come before God, we bring a gift in response. And C was the come and eat in peace offering, uh, where the worshippers got to actually eat the animal they'd sacrificed. And then last week, we, we looked at the first of the, the two kind of extra offerings. Those first three had been going on before Leviticus was written, okay, before the Exodus. You can read about them in, in the book of Genesis. But last week, we looked at the first uh, of the last two, if you like, number four, uh, what the, uh, the version we have on our laps uh, calls the sin offering. And that we saw was all to do with purifying us. Uh, the blood was sprinkled all over the place. We won't go over the details again. And the idea was that we need purifying ourselves if we can come, before we can come before God. And so as we, we meet this guilt offering, we might be tempted to say, well, what's left? We've had offerings that, that purify us. We've had offerings that allow us to come into God's presence. We've had offerings where God feeds us. So what's this fifth one uh, about? Uh, I think the best way to think about this offering straight off the bat is that it is essentially a payback offering. Okay? It's called a guilt offering. But, but what it does is pay back God for the wrong that we've done. Okay, so just look at verse 15. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally, uh, what must he do? He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish. This is paying back God for the injury you've done to him, if you like, the dishonour you've shown him. Or, or verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss and add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. We'll look at the details in a minute. But those two words, okay, making restitution, uh, or in verse 14, sorry, 15, uh, making compensation, are at the heart of what this offering is about. Okay, the picture here is not purifying us, but paying back God for what the worshipper has done wrong. There's very little detail you might notice, especially if you've been here the last four weeks. Uh, you'll often have, will have read just long, long passage about how exactly to kill the animal and where the blood goes and all the rest of it. Here it's just really short, isn't it? You bring a ram and that's it. There's no variation. You remember the other offering? Sometimes you bought a sheep or sometimes you bought a pigeon or whatever it might be. No, it's a one ram for everybody. That's it. There's virtually no details about what you do with it, presumably because it just works a little bit like the other offerings. You kill the ram and that's more or less it. But the emphasis is on this paying back what we've done wrong. Uh, when do you offer it? Well, three circumstances. Okay, I just want to get clear what the offering is before we sort of try and work out what, what it says to us today. But, but three sets of circumstances when an Israelite would bring this offering. Uh, the first is if they sinned against what are called the holy things of God in verse 15. Did you see that? If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord compensation. What are the holy things? Well, the idea, I think, and we get this unpacked a little bit later in the book and in other places in the Old Testament. The idea is that in the days of the tabernacle, certain things had different kind of levels of holiness. If you like, you could be kind of bronze holy or silver holy, if a bit more holy, or gold holy. The, the, the priests, for example, were holier than the normal people but even holier than the priest was the high priest so there were kind of statuses of holiness if you like 
it's not talking about morality. We, when we talk about holiness, we often talk, mean sort of being good, don't we? You know, being moral. That's not quite what it is talking about here, although later in the book it will do. It's more to do with sort of how near things get to God. So think of that tabernacle that we've thought about a few times over the weeks. Uh, you know, there's the central room, the most holy place. And then the next room out is just the holy place. And the next room out is the courtyard. And as you got further and further away from God, you just got less holy. So the things were made of different metals, you know, gold for the, the, the stuff right in the middle, but just bronze for the stuff on the outside. It's not that gold is better than bronze. It's just that symbolically it was closer to God. And what's this got to do with sinning against the holy things? Well, the idea, I think, is that uh, you, you could, hopefully unintentionally, as it says in verse 15, you could, as maybe just a normal person, misuse something or, or take hold of something that was above your pay grade. So, so perhaps some of the food that was just for the priests, you end up eating. But you're not allowed to do that. You've encroached too closely to God. That's above your level. You're just a sort of common bronze level person and you've eaten some of the food that was for the silver level priests. Well, that would be a sin against the holy things. Now, that wasn't the only... Uh, time this offering was brought, though, if you look at verse 17, there's a more general one. And this is perhaps where it gets close to home for us. See in verse 17, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, well, that's pretty broad, isn't it? Do anything that the Lord says you shouldn't do. And though he doesn't know it, then he realizes his guilt. He shall bear his iniquity. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you've done something that is wrong, just hugely undefined, just anything the Lord says is wrong, you've done it, you didn't fully realise at the time, but then you woke up to it. So, so again, we're dealing here, as with last week, we're dealing not with the person who wakes up in the morning and thinks, right, I am going to flat out sin today, okay? I'm going to get up, I'm going to commit adultery, I'm going to murder someone, okay? I'm going to steal, and I'm going to do it all in deliberate rebellion against God. Now, now, these are all what Leviticus 5 calls unintentional sins, or if you like, sins of wandering, the kind of sins that are most of the sins we commit, well, we, it's not as if we determinedly, high-handedly, as the Bible says, rebelled against God. It's just that we're weak and, and still corrupted and we just drift off course and afterwards we think, oh no, I've done it again. And... Well, in verse 17 to, to 19, the situation is that we, we've sinned and then we've woken up. It's a funny expression, isn't it? If then, verse 17, he realises his guilt... I think there's two ways that the Israelite, and in fact us too, can, can realise our guilt after the fact, as it were. What, what wakes us up to the fact that we've sinned? Uh, the first is our conscience. Uh, God has put a conscience inside us that, that when it's working rightly, is exactly aligned with God's word. Okay. So the Bible tells us that God writes his law on our hearts. Uh, that's why people who aren't Christians still know it's wrong to murder and steal and commit adultery. It's not because they've read the Bible. It's just that God has imprinted on our hearts right and wrong. Our hearts are corrupt, so we get it wrong. Okay, so our conscience goes wrong at times. But God has put it there as a guide. And you'll know it'll happen to you sometimes. A bit later in the day, you'll look back and you'll think about the conversation you had with a colleague this morning. Oh, was I just a bit too biting? Was I a bit too sharp, a bit too sarcastic? Uh, you'll think back on the day before uh, and just think, actually, 
the way I treated my kids, was, was that offside? It's not that someone has come and told you off. It's not that you've read the Bible and been, you know, read the verse about being patient with your children. It's just that, well, your conscience has kicked in. That's worth saying your conscience can be wrong. Okay, sometimes we're, we're, just, we're just wrong. So our conscience needs educated to get it back in line with God's word. That's why we study the Bible. But the situation here, I think, is someone realising after the fact that he's done wrong. And, well, even though he didn't sort of high-handedly rebel against God, he is still guilty. Verse 19, he has still incurred guilt. Even if we do something that we didn't realise was wrong, but it's against God's law, we're still guilty. You don't have to know it's wrong in order for it to be a breach of God's law. So conscience might wake him up. And the other thing is the curse. God said in the Old Testament that at times, if, if his people keep walking away from him, he would just begin to discipline them as the curses of the covenant fell. Perhaps their crops would fail. Uh, perhaps their business would sort of go downhill a little bit. Uh, perhaps the rains would be withheld. Uh, perhaps invaders from another country would come in. It's all laid out at the end of the book of Leviticus. And one of the things that was meant to happen when the people suffered like that was they were meant to think, have we done something wrong here? Is our suffering here a, a reaction, a reaction to the fact that we've wandered away from God? And again, it is not dissimilar in the New Testament. We tend to think that's all very Old Testament, don't we? But, but think of the, the letters of the Corinthians. Okay, the letters of the Corinthians, in chapters 10 and 11, Paul is writing about how they've really been conducting their services, and particularly communion, okay, this, this meal. And without going into the details, it's, it's obvious that, that they've been mistreating one another. So the rich people have been having these sort of banquets and keeping the, you know, the poor Christians out of it. And Paul says, because they've been so kind of just dismissive about this meal that's meant to show that we're all one in Christ, so dismissive about this meal that's meant to feed us, but actually some of them have got ill and even died. God has made them get ill because of the rebellion against him. It's not saying they're not Christians. It's not saying they're not going to heaven. It's just that God is disciplining them. Now, it's not, that is not, let me say this really clearly, that is not the only reason we get ill. Okay? There are dozens of reasons we get ill. And perhaps the most common is the fact that we just live in a fallen world. Okay? People just get ill. Eventually, we're all going to get ill and die, aren't we? So it's not that every time you're ill, God is disciplining you. Okay? We must say that really clearly. And that means that if someone is ill, your reaction isn't, well, what have you done? Okay, Goodness me, you must have done something terrible. But it ought to be on the kind of checklist of things we at least think about. Okay, If we do become ill, the same again at the end of the book of James, same situation. Now, I really don't want this to drive us off into kind of massive introspective paranoia. Okay, So next time you get a headache, don't start panicking. But we've got to stick with what God's word says. Uh, sometimes his hand of discipline does fall on us to wake us up to sin. I think the, the most helpful thing I can say here, therefore, is that when that happens, okay, and if you do find yourself ill in, in some sort of serious way, and you think, right, okay, I just need to at least think about that as an option, then it's going to be a pretty high-handed sin for God to be disciplining you in that way. Don't get paranoid that just because you've gossiped a bit or, you know, just because you, you sin in unintentional ways that, that God is therefore kind of slapping you down. It's worth talking with someone else. But it, but it is the kind of situation, so think about the one in Corinth. 
if we're just showing complete disrespect for God's people or, or God's gospel, then God does have the right to discipline us. We're forgiven, going to heaven, but just as a father or mother discipline their children, doesn't mean they don't love them, well, so too God has the right to discipline us. It's perhaps best discerned by talking uh, to other people uh, and getting their advice too. Uh, so the conscience or, or the fall of these little curses wake the person up and they bring a guilt offering. And then the final one in verses uh, 2 through 5 of chapter 6 are a whole series of kind of financial sins. Uh, so uh, in verse 2, uh, if you sin by deceiving your neighbour with a deposit or security or you rob him okay, or you oppress him, Or verse 3, you find something lost and you lie about it, swearing falsely. You know, you, your neighbour comes around and says, look, I've lost, my, um, you know, I've lost my goat. Have you seen it? No, not seen your goat. And there's a sort of bleating in the background. No, nope. I swear by Yahweh's name, I've not seen your goat. And you know full well it's in your back garden and you've nicked it. Well, if you commit that kind of financial sin, well then, too, you need to bring this guilt offering and pay back the 20% in addition. Okay, so that's what happens. Okay, so far, great if you're an Israelite. There, there's a process if you're an Israelite. That is not what you have to do today. Very obviously, if you commit one of these sins, you do not need to bring a guilt to church, uh, goat to church on, sorry, a ram, isn't it? To church on Sunday morning, slaughter it, uh, and be forgiven. So, so what is, what's this passage telling us? What's it telling you as a Christian? Uh, four things about sin and one about salvation. We're going to go quickly through these. Uh, the first thing it tells us is God's holy things still matter. Remember that first category? If we sin against the holy things, God's holy things still matter. We're tempted, I think, if we're Christians and we've been around the, the Bible for a while, to think, well, all the holy stuff is kind of Old Testament. The idea of God having a holy place and, I don't know, holy uh, people and all the rest of it, priests. It's all very Old Testament. And then Jesus does away with it all. But that's not quite how it works. Uh, for example, there are no priests wandering around on earth anymore. I'm not a priest. There's no person whose job it is to be a priest. A priest is someone who stands between you and God. But the Bible doesn't say there are no priests anymore. It just says there's only one, Jesus, and he's in heaven. Well, what are holy things? What are the holy things we might sin against that seem to provoke God to anger so much in Leviticus 5 and 6? The most obvious one to think about is to think about yourself. When we get to the book of Corinthians, Paul says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that just as remember the, the, the glory cloud, the sort of fiery, cloudy pillar that led the Israelites through the desert came and, came and lived in the middle of the tabernacle, the tent, well, so too God's presence, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells in you if you're a Christian. And that's why he can say that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit or tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, if you like. And in the book of Corinthians, Paul applies this in a really pretty striking way. He's writing those who are committing sexual sin, okay, sleeping with prostitutes. And what does he say? Well, he tells them their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say this. Do you not know, too, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? It's pretty striking, isn't it? When I sin, because I'm full of the Holy Spirit and therefore united to Christ, it's almost as if, and I have to be careful how I say this, but it's almost as if I'm forcing 
Christ to sin. Now, Christ never sins, and you say, don't mishear me there. But because I'm so tightly bound to Christ, it's like I'm bringing him into that sin too. See how serious, or seriously, God takes how we use our bodies. Your body is now a holy thing, a thing dedicated to the Lord. It is holier, because the Holy Spirit is literally living in you if you're a Christian, it is holier than ever the altar in the tabernacle. Okay, or the, the table that's there, or even the Ark of the Covenant. It, it, in some ways, your, your body has become like the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the holiness of God dwelling there. That's why we have to be so careful what we do with our bodies. It's not simply we're sinning against ourselves or sort of being a bit naughty, but God's up there in heaven. No, Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. So we become the holy things. And in fact, in the same letter, he talks about the church as a whole body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just individuals now, but corporately. And again, the way he applies that in chapter 3 of Corinthians, you can look at it later if you like, but in chapter 3 of Corinthians, he's so adamant that anyone who, well, anyone who attacks the church is essentially attacking God. So another way we could sin against the holy things is basically sinning against the body of Christ corporately, the church. Paul says this, do you not know that you, congregation, are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. There you go. And you are the temple. Church is a huge thing. It's not a gathering. It's not a club. It's not a bunch of people who kind of like Jesus who will get together on a Sunday morning. You are a holy place, says Paul. So, so don't think of church as less spectacular okay, or less holy or less special to God than the tabernacle. All this, all, you think how, how respectfully you would have approached the tabernacle. Okay, God's burning fire in the middle of it. Okay, you wouldn't have sauntered in and s- sinned, would you? You commit adultery, you wouldn't do it in the tabernacle. Okay, if you're going to have a, an argument with someone, you wouldn't do it inside the court of the tabernacle if you're an Israelite. You'd be too scared. Look, I'm in God's presence here. Paul says that's you all the time now, and especially when you gather together. So God's holy things still matter. Uh, so too, secondly, God's honour still matters. Uh, in verse 2 uh, of Leviticus uh, 5, it talks about... Um, sorry, I lost my place... Uh, so not, sorry, not verse 2 of Leviticus 6, not 5. Uh, it talks about uh, sinning against the Lord as a breach of faith. That is the treachery word. Or verse 3, we swear falsely. And it's reminding us that, that ultimately we are not only dwelt in by God, but we're citizens of a king. So everything we do that is against him is an act of treachery or betrayal. And, and the, the emphasis all the way through those financial sins is not so much on what we do wrong to our neighbour, though that is there, but ultimately that we've sworn falsely in God's name. We've let him down, we've betrayed him. So we've taken that promise, I swear by Yahweh, by, I swear in, by, in Jesus' name, I swear I didn't take your goat. And therefore, we've dishonoured God, which is why he takes these sins so seriously. We've taken God's name in vain, in other words. Now, how would you take God's name in vain nowadays? How would we swear falsely? I suspect that almost no one in this room has ever lied and preceded that lie with, I tell you, in Jesus' name, I didn't dot, dot, dot. You know, a little lie? 
as we would see it. I imagine we've never said to our boss, for example, I tell you, in Jesus' name, I did do that work, but it just seems to have been wiped off the computer. Or we've appeared late for lunch with someone. I swear to you, in Jesus' name, it was the traffic. It wasn't my fault. Okay, we just don't speak like that, do we? So we might think we're kind of clear here because we, we don't literally kind of swear in Jesus' name. But where is Jesus' name now? Where is God's name? God's name is on your forehead if you've been baptised. God's name is on your body. You were baptised into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're baptised, Christian, then, it, then it's, if you like, you, you've been branded. Okay, you can't see it anymore. The water doesn't stain. We don't use kind of indelible ink to mark you out. But spiritually, you've been marked out. You bear God's name. And that means everything you do, you do as a representative of God. Not just representing yourself, but God. So when you lie to your colleagues or your family or whoever else it might be, you're bringing dishonour not just on yourself, but on God who's stamped his name upon you. Children, did you see the royal wedding a few weeks ago? Did anyone see that? Um, as Prince Harry married... Who did he marry? Thank you, Meghan Markle. There we go. Meghan Markle. So Meghan Markle, two months ago, she was just an American actress, wasn't she? What she did was her own business. No one really, well, she's maybe a fan's game, but no one really cared too much. Never heard of her. But as of a fortnight ago or three weeks ago, suddenly she is a duchess. She's a member of the royal family. So from now on, everything she does, she does as a royal. It matters even more than it did before. If you're a Christian, you're now a son or daughter of the king. You bear his name. And that is why sin is so serious and demands all these offerings in Leviticus. So God's holy things still matter. God's honour still matters. Repayment still matters. This passage tells us so much about God's justice and how we act, even as those who are forgiven. Remember, the Israelites are, sort of, if you like, already saved before they have to bring these sacrifices. These aren't sacrifices that turn them into Christians or turn them into believers. But, but they're not allowed, when they sin, to just say, well, hey, look, I've been forgiven, so... There we go. So if uh, you know, a robber's running down the high street and he's, uh, he robs a bank, he robs Lloyd's bank, gets a sack of cash over his, his shoulder, he's running down, he runs past one of those street evangelists and he hears the evangelist shout out, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the robber thinks, ha, huh, I believe. All my sins are forgiven. What does he have to do? Is, does he think, great, I'm forgiven, and then just keep running? with his sack of loot? Well, no, of course not. His job is to take it back to the bank, uh, to repay what he took. But actually, there's more than that, isn't there? It, it, we're to return not just what we stole, but also each time we're to add a fifth, 20% to it. If I steal, I give back 120%, not just 100%. The idea, of course, is that we don't profit from sin. Imagine someone sort of stealing his neighbor's cow, for six months, getting, you know, taking all the calves that she bears, you know, taking all the milk and all the rest of it, and then just giving the cow back at the end of it. Well, that's not fair. No, you need to make repayment. So each time there's a fifth added to whatever you've, you've uh, taken. Uh, that is God's justice. Again, think of it in our own times. Uh, the book of Malachi uh, uh, talks about that the people have been robbing God by not giving their, their tithes, their offerings. What are they meant to do? 
A few times I've had conversations with people where they, they said, oh, I just, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm committed to the church. Um, it's just that for the last year, I, I just keep forgetting to, to do any giving. Now, there are no rules about how much you should give. So, but what, if they look back and say, do you know what, I meant over the last however long, I meant to give a hundred, you know, I would have given a hundred pounds. I promised God I would give 10 pounds a month and it's 10 months. I would have given a hundred pounds, but I haven't done it. What are they meant to do under these laws? Not give the hundred pounds back, but give 120 pounds under the Israelite laws. Now, you can't take them one for one, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying that you always have to add 20% nowadays, but, but you see the principle. Like when we offend someone else or God, when we cost them, we give back not just what we took, but an extra 20%. What does that mean? Children, if you kind of swipe your brother's or sister's sweets, yeah, they've got a packet of Rolos, and you swipe them and scoff them, okay? Then what do you have to give back to them? Not a packet of Rolos, but a packet of Rolos and a Mars bar. Okay? You have to give back more in God's system of justice. Repayment matters. And fourthly and finally here, repentance matters too. You see all the way through, it's been 20%, add 20%, add 20%, add 20%. If you steal something, add 20%. Keep your finger in Leviticus, but flick back to the book of of Exodus, just the one before, and chapter 22. Chapter 22 of Exodus, and verse 1. What's odd here? What's odd here? Again, children, see if you can spot this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a, sh- for a sheep. Or look at verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor's money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Now this, these rules were given days before the rules in Leviticus. Okay, they're, still at, they're still in the same place. Exodus 22, pinch an ox or a sheep, five times or four times as much you have to give back or double if you steal some money. Leviticus, just add 20%. Now, as Moses changes his mind, has he gone soft over the coming weeks? Has he been negotiated down? No. What's the difference? The difference is that in Exodus, the thief or the person who does the stealing is caught. He doesn't repent. He's just caught. Whereas in Leviticus, the person wakes up and says, no, I've done this. They confess themselves. And therefore, the payback is different. You see? It's less. Because repentance matters. That means, for example, uh, again, children, if if you do something wrong and your mum and dad don't know about it, it's right to go and tell them about it even before they catch you. You don't wait for them to find out what you've done wrong. You go and tell them what you've done wrong. And it means mums and dads, when your children come and tell you what they've done wrong, that the, the sort of penalty is less than it would be if you just caught them. Okay, there's a pun- principle of justice. It doesn't mean there's no penalty, children. It doesn't mean you don't get in trouble. It just means it's less. Uh, that also makes a big difference for our church life. Okay, it's time and time, we've had this, we've had this I need to be vague for obvious reasons, but been involved in, in one situation in particular uh, in church uh, life, not this church, uh, where a leader did something terrible. 
and um, definitely needed to step down, and that was all very clear. But there was a whole bunch of people arguing, well, look, uh, he was caught. Okay, he didn't confess, caught. A whole bunch of people saying, look, it's grace. We believe in grace. So we just need to forgive him and let everything continue as normal. That's not the way God's justice works. Yes, we forgive, but there are consequences for our sins. And the consequences are greater, and the suspicion we would hold this person in, frankly, is higher if we don't confess, just get caught. Grace is not this kind of whitewash that means you never think about how you treat people from now on. Okay, so the person who's been caught stealing, you forgive them, but you don't ever let them be church treasurer. Uh, sin continues to matter. But ultimately, uh, and this is as we come to a close, if this passage teaches us four things about sin, just one about salvation. And that is Christ as the fulfilment of this guilt or this repayment offering. Uh, before we leave Leviticus, just, just have this in your mind. The only offering, the only animal you could bring for this offering was a lamb, okay, a male or ram, a male sheep. Okay, keep that in your mind. And come to, Levitic, uh, to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. This guilt offering was a male sheep. Psalm 40 and verse 6. This is prophetically Jesus speaking, if you like. And he lists four. Remember there are five offerings in Leviticus? He lists four. In verse 6 of Psalm 40, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. There are four offerings or sacrifices listed there. The sacrifice, that first word sacrifice, is the word used for the peace offering, the sea. Come and eat in peace. Offering is the one used for that bring a gift offering in Leviticus 2. Burnt offering is that... Leviticus 1, the ascension offering. Sin offering is the one we looked at last week. The one missing of the five is this guilt offering. And when Hebrews quotes this passage, it says this. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. What's the one missing? Bulls and goats. But the lamb is missing. Just as the guilt offering is missing here. When Psalm 40 is saying that these sacrifices just don't work, the guilt offering is missing. The lamb is missing, just as it is in Hebrews. So, so as we read on and come to Isaiah 53, what do we see? And perhaps one of the most famous passages uh, in the Old Testament. What do we see? Isaiah 53 and verse 7. This prophecy of Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the lamb who takes away all our sin, all our guilt, repays all our debt to God. And in case we think that's just too tenuous a link, look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall prolong his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. There's the guilt offering. That is the exact, the exact phrase from Leviticus 5 we've been looking at. It is the only offering, this guilt offering, this one we've looked at this morning, it is the only one in the Old Testament that is applied directly to Jesus. 
Jesus is the lamb who dies in our place. Sin always deserves death. And he is the one who pays back our debt to God. It's as if we, you know, all the bills that we've racked up, further and further in debt, Jesus pays off. And that's why it's so important he is the son of God. He died for the sins of the world. If you need to add 20% to every sin, as it were, to pay it back to God, what kind of cost do you need to pay to pay back God for the sin of all his people? Well, no man alone is going to be able to do that. And that's why it's so important that Jesus is the Son of God. How valuable is the Son of God? That the ram was weighed, we saw that in, in Leviticus. The ram, had, the ram had to be assessed and, and measured according to the shekel, you know, which was the coins, to make sure it was a valuable enough ram. How valuable is God's only Son? Infinitely valuable. And so there is grace to spare when paying for your sin. Nothing you have done is too costly for Jesus to pay for. See how rich his atonement is, how completely your debt is paid. You're worried that what you've done this time is a step too far. Well, no, Christ's value is infinite and he gave himself for you. So let me close with this question. As we get to the end of these five offerings, let me close with this question. Okay, really think about this. Is God willing to forgive you because of the sacrifice of Jesus? Or does God provide a sacrifice because he wants to forgive you. Let me say that again. Think about it. Is God willing to forgive you because of the sacrifice of Jesus? Or does God provide the sacrifice of Jesus because he's willing to forgive you? Put it another way. Does God love you because Jesus died for you? Or did Jesus die for you because God loves you? It actually really matters. tell you the Bible's answer. God loves you and so Jesus died for you. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. If God only loves you because Jesus died for you, then Jesus' death was essentially kind of twisting his father's arm to love you. I mean, Jesus is God, so it all gets very weird anyway, doesn't it? But so often I think we're rightly focused on the cross, so we think the only reason God loves us is because Jesus died for us. But no, God sent his son because he loved us. The love comes first. God genuinely really loves you. It's so easy to think that actually fundamentally God is against me, but then if I hide behind Jesus, then I'll kind of be okay. But no, God loves you. The only way to safety is through the cross. Don't, don't mishear me. We still need the cross, the sacrifice. But God's love is the source, not the consequence of the sacrifice. To paraphrase uh, John Stott there. That means God is more willing to forgive you than you are to ask. It means God is more committed to your salvation than you are. He is keener to get you into heaven than you are to escape hell. Jesus, the true guilt offering, dies for everything you've done wrong and pays back beyond value everything you owe to God. And so you are fully and finally safe. All these sacrifices are meant to reassure us that God is for us that nothing can separate us from his love and that every debt is paid. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we reflect both on our sinfulness but also on Christ's sacrifice, we praise you uh, that the one vastly outweighs the other, uh, that everything that Christ has done uh, pays for and covers over our guilt. Uh, We pray that you would give us an increasing sense of our own sinfulness and and a desire 
uh, to repent and confess, confident uh, that you will receive us again. But we pray perhaps even more that you would expand our view of your love and Christ's sacrifice, that we would never doubt your goodness to us, your love for us, but we rejoice to know that as your children we are fully and finally safe. Uh, Thanks to his blood, the true Lamb of God shed for us. Father, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.